process decade after decade after decade of continuing to pitch, continuing to do volume and velocity, not to educate our people in customers' businesses and how we solve their problems and how we truly become helpful. It's like Bill Murray in Groundhog Day. I wake up every day and, and replay the same scenario that I first learned when I started selling at IBM. Hi, friends. Welcome to the Sales Enablement Podcast. I'm your host, Andy Paul. That was David Brock. Dave is CEO of Partners in Excellence, which is a global sales consulting firm. And he's the author of the best-selling book, Sales Manager Survival Guide. Now, in our conversation today, we dig into the negative salesy behaviors that are so endemic in selling. And we talk about why they're so persistent and why they're so difficult to change. We then dive into a topic of key importance to every seller and sales leader, or at least it should be, and that is win rates. There's some controversy in some circles about how important win rates are. I think they're hugely important. They are the ultimate referendum, the ultimate referendum of the buyer on the effectiveness of the seller. So we get into all of this and much, much more. But before we get to Dave, I want to remind you to subscribe to this podcast wherever you listen to it. And if you subscribe, we'd certainly appreciate it. If you could leave us a review, give us your feedback about how we're doing. So thank you very much. All right, let's jump into it. Dave Brock, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Andy. It's always such, I always look forward to these conversations with you. It's so much fun. Yeah. Yeah. You know, we can actually do these when we're not on a podcast. <laughs> I, I never really realized that. <laughs> Gee, there's this thing called the phone or, or one-on-one kinds of conversations. I thought the only way I could ever talk to you was in front of an audience. In front of an audience. Well, here we are. Uh, <laughs> semi in front of an audience, but uh, yeah. Close enough for what it is right now. So, uh, how are things? Good, good. Busy with all sorts of things. You know, the pandemic has introduced a lot of new challenges to my clients and new ways of doing things. It's actually, I think, probably one of the most exciting times I've seen in selling, um, you know, in ages. And I'm really optimistic about some of the changes that I see being uh, uh, seeing us adapt to. So what would those be? I mean, we all know the obvious, but what are you seeing that's perhaps not as obvious that's exciting you? Well, I, I think one is is the, the rate, the thing that I'm seeing that's, that's not surprising, but happening at a rate probably three or four times faster than I expected was the uh, customer digital buying journey. Mm-hmm. Is you know we we've known from people like Gartner and other research people that that customers have a preference to uh, uh, exploit kind of digital channels, and now we're seeing they were forced into exploiting digital channels in the pandemic. They like it. They're moving away from salespeople and t- learning how to buy in new ways, and and so. That's ha- that's something we expected, but has happened really, really fast, I think, driven by the pandemic. Mm-hmm. What's fascinating to me is to see how some organiza- sales organizations are responding to it and exploiting it and really doing fairly exciting things. So give us an example. So 
You know, a, a couple of examples is is one is is kind of the role of certain salespeople, let's say account managers, are shifting more into kind of things like orchestrators and project managers, mm-hmm. helping people with this navigation process. You know, how should they be framing problems? How should they be framing issues? What questions should they be asking? Where should they be looking? And those kinds of things. So that's one that, that I see. The other one is the need for specialization. And this is, I mean, we've had specialists sure. in sales for ages. They're usually product line specialists or something like that. But I have three clients right now that have been experimenting with business process specialists. Because what they're trying to do is is they're trying to say, our customers don't understand how to buy. They don't understand how to look at the business issues mm-hmm. and what they should be thinking about and so on and so forth. So they're introducing these business process specialists solely to focus them on problem solving in the business. I have one client that's now to, using... To fo- well, excuse me, to, f- to help. So this is a business process specialist employed by a sales organization helping the buyer focus on the process of buying. Exactly, exactly. You know, how do they frame the problem? How do they start defining what they want to do? Who should be involved in it? What are some of the best practices in solving that problem? Not what is the best solution for it, but what are some of the best practices in solving the problem? And those things link together ultimately, but they really start from a client focus in business process focus than a product and solution focus. Um, And it's profound. Uh, One client is now judging the quality of their deals based on the customer willingness to accept that business process expertise. So that is, if the customer doesn't have that business process expertise themselves, Mm -hmm. Um, they offer this as part of the the selling process and as part of working with the customer. They now qualify and disqualify opportunities based on the customer willingness to accept that. Hmm. And and what they've learned, which is actually remarkable, and when you think about it, it makes a huge amount of sense. Those that don't have that expertise and – aren't willing to expect that expertise uh, or leverage that expertise, uh, probably will become customers from hell. They, they either will never reach a buying decision. They'll abandon it because it's so complex they can't move forward and they can't get agreement or they can't justify the solution. Or if they actually make a decision, they'll become the customer from hell because they don't know what they're doing. Right. Uh, so now this client is is qualifying and disqualifying opportunities based on the customer's willingness to do this. The the data we have, they've been doing this now for about seven to nine months. The data that we have in terms of win rates and average deal values is stunning. More importantly, the what we see in terms of repeat sales from those customers is growing like crazy as well. So it's really a kind of a novel twist on how we help our customers buy that's uh, 
that's really fascinating. And they're going on the premise that rather than being sales-led, digitally supported, they're looking at these experiences that are digitally-led, sales-supported. Mm-hmm. Well, but at, at the bottom line there, though, is what you're talking about is – how are we creating, how is we as a sales organization, a sales entity, how are we creating a positive buying experience, not just from the aspect of new logo acquisition, but also on expansion and renewals throughout the entire revenue cycle? It's new logo acquisition. Help customers successfully complete their buying journey and create an experience that, you know, Rather than, you know, you see a lot of the Gartner data, for instance, that says, you know, customers prefer to buy without salespeople, but they have huge amounts of buyer remorse. So now how do we engage salespeople creating this this great buyer experience, creating great, you know, eliminating buyer remorse and say, we want to do more of this. And more importantly, we want to do more of this with you. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, I, the Gartner research, I've always look at it with a little bit of a jaundiced view because <laughs> yeah, I mean the bottom line is not that buyers don't want to deal with sellers. They don't want to deal with sellers that waste their time. Exactly. I, I mean, and that's been, and this, the thing this gets is, misinterpreted is, and extrapolated saying, well, buyers don't want to talk with sellers. It's like, no, they just don't have time for you. If you can't help them do what they need to do. Well, and, and that's there, you know, other organizations and other Gartner research that says, it's it's buyers are roughly agnostic. They want to solve their problem. Yes, and and the pro- the reason they don't like dealing with sellers is sellers aren't helping them solve their problem. Right. Buyers have a limited amount of time and attention, mm-hmm. and if you waste the time and attention that they can never get back, they don't have time for you. Yeah. I mean, this is. Yeah. But this is not new. I mean, that's that's a basic intelligence test. You know, I'm not <laughs> going to spend my time with somebody that can't help me solve my problem. Right. But we act like this is revealed wisdom these days. And the fact is, this goes back forever. Right. I mean, if you waste somebody's time, they don't have time for you. I mean, but, and, in my in know, my career, no one's ever had time for me if I couldn't add value to them. You and I have talked about this, I mean, I think in every single podcast we've done and also (laughs) our our other conversations, you know, and I was thinking just before this call, I I was thinking, what's really new and different? And I think back to my friend, Mac Hannon, who wrote Consultative Selling, and I think it was, he published it in 1970. I was still in high school then, but- (laughs) I'm glad you framed that, but yeah, go ahead. Well, I, I had to do that as a disclaimer. <laughs> and I met back later on year, years later. But, but, but you know, he wrote consultative selling. And you look at things like Neil wrote spin selling about right. the same time. All the principles are the same. They haven't changed, but we just haven't paid attention to them. Exactly. You know, back, back, Mac talked about... You know, what problems is the customer trying to solve? How do you help them solve their problems? That was 1970. That's 51 years ago. Uh. Yeah. Yeah, that's before I was born. Um, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, that's, that's the thing that sort of just, as it gets me, it's like, you know, the Gartner research is like, it's just, it's no different. The imperative is the same for sellers today as it was yesterday as it was you know five years ago and so on is 
sellers, uh, buyers have time for you if you can be a source of value for them. Yeah. And, and, and again, I, I, we seem to be rediscovering it. It's not new news. So to me, the interesting question becomes what keeps us from doing what we know is the right thing to do? Which is the eternal what keeps question. Us decade after decade after right. decade of continuing to pitch, continuing to do volume and velocity, not to educate our people in customers' businesses and how we solve their problems mm-hmm. and how we truly become helpful. Right. But we seem, you know, it, it's like Bill Murray in, in Groundhog Day. I, I, I wake up every day and, and replay the same scenario that I first learned when I, I started selling at IBM. Yeah, well, precisely. Yeah, when I was researching for my new book, is is I was doing a lot of searching about sales process, B two B selling processes, and so yeah. on. And they're you know they're identical today as they were fifty years ago. Yeah, I mean, same yeah. stages, fundamentally same stages. Yes, you know, the all derivatives basically of the IBM five call close. Right. Yeah. yeah I mean, you, yeah. you're brought up with that, I imagine. And your IBM days, it's like, all we've done is we've automated them. Yeah. I, I think what we've done is we've had a veneer of technology that makes us think that we've changed. We have a veneer of maybe, you know, now rather than calling it consultative sales uh, or spin sales or, or, or whatever it was that, that Neil and Max started talking about, it, we now call it challenger sale or something else. But the mm. principle, underlying principles have always been the same. You know, and it, you know, I mean, the good news is it causes consultants and authors like you and I to make a lot of money <laughs> without really saying anything new. <laughs> well, hey, I've got new in my book. Hey, hey. Uh, no, I'm kidding. It's, it's, yeah, no, it's, it is. I think your question is the fundamental question is why does it seem like we have to sort of recreate the wheel every, you know, with every new class of sellers that come into the profession? Yeah. Yeah. And, and I, I think the issue is, is, and this is where it gets, you know, some of your audience may immediately turn off, um, you know, and give this a thumbs down in terms of the like scale and all that. But but it really is a, a leadership issue. Um, you know, we blame salespeople for not executing, not doing the things, but salespeople are just doing what they have been trained to do, what they're told to do, and what they're measured on doing. And we're training, telling them, and measuring them on the wrong things. Right. And so so we need to get sales managers to and sales executives and, and beyond that CEOs to fundamentally rethink, you know, what are we trying to accomplish as an organization with who, how do we do that most successfully and how do we do that consistently? And so how do we do that? I mean, I think that, that you're absolutely right. I agree hundred percent that it's the issue start at the very top uh, with leadership and management and filter the way down to lower level managers is how do we, how do we get that to change? It's it, to me, it, looking at it a little bit more cynically, it's like, you know, if you're a CEO, it's like, you don't really care, right? I mean, you want to hit the numbers, but beyond that, 
you know, how much do you really care about whether you're creating change that leads to a fundamental change in selling culture and selling practices and so on? Um, yeah, I, I look at something to me like sort of front and center recently. We talked about, you know, burnout and mental health issues with sellers. And it's like, okay, well, it seems like a pretty easy, easy call for a sales organization of any size, knowing these are real issues to have a mental health professional on staff. If you've got a yeah. hundred sellers, you mean you can't afford one more full-time employee slot for a mental health professional to help with performance, you know, issues that are perform, you know, affect performance so well, directly. And, and the issue is, is, you know, people will say, well, you know, we can't afford the cost, but you know, you, you, you know, people start, looking which is at the problem. What is the opportunity cost? You know, the fact that we're losing millions in productivity where we may have to spend a few hundred thousand to get a, a mental health professional or some programs going, you know, again, people f- tend to frame the issues in the, the wrong. It's interesting how, you know, we as sellers, we talk about selling value and the value that we create and the return and all that. But when we evaluate programs to improve our own uh, productivity and our own performance and our own uh, uh uh, I think seller experiences is we <laughs> look at price and and not yeah. kind of the opportunity cost and the gap on that. So so I, I think that you know why what keeps us from changing what keeps us from no doing what we know to be right. I, you know I wish I had the answer to that. I think I have parts of answers to that. I think one is is you know we're in this this environment right now where I think one of the most devastating things I see in organizations is the continued decline in average tenure. Mm-hmm. You know, we have sales managers and salespeople right now, uh, average tenure is trending less than 18 months. Right. Well, from a seller point of view in complex B2B selling, you start thinking, well, it takes me a year to ramp up and onboard. I'm going into sales cycles that are 12 months to 18 months to this morning. I was on a call 24 months. Sure. And so I'm starting, I'm scratching my head and saying, now, how's this math work out? 12 months till I'm productive. I have this 12 month sales cycle, but I'm gone in six months. Uh, you know, so that doesn't work. Then you have managers up to senior executives who are only around for a short time. Well, we know these change initiatives take a long time in several cycles. So they never get, they start well-intended change initiatives, but they're gone before they even start seeing results. Or they get this really short-term kind of focused thing of, I've got to do something that right. makes That's a difference this week, next week, this month. And what those usually are is that's not improving how we engage customers, but it's it's driving the volume equation. Yeah. You know, so we do more emails, no, more cold calls, you know, more activities. And so you start seeing some of these things that just leap out to you as being problems with how we do that. If we start getting organizations that have longer tenure, I'm working with a team right now in Australia, really a remarkable culture uh, and a remarkable organization. And you can see this 
in their performance, their year-after-year performance. And you can see this um, in their competitive performance, and you can see this in how their customers respond to them. But their average tenure is is 12 years. Yeah, well, it makes, it makes it, a huge I mean, difference. <laughs> very, very different. Well, yeah. I mean, to the point you, you just made is, is that if you think, you're a CRO or a sales leader and you've got a 12 to 18 month window to do something. Well, first of all, what are you, what are you doing? Are you trying to do something in order to position yourself for the next position? Or are you trying to do something to retain the job you're in? Yeah. Um, but I think irrespective of which one of those it is, is you're unlikely to try something that's radically different. Well, and, and so people are driven by this kind of short-term mentality. Yep, absolutely. But you don't solve these complex problems in those periods of time. Well, you, you, know, you can know that you're on the right path in some of those periods of time, but you don't necessarily solve them. And, and again, I, you know, while I, I put sales executives at the core of that, it goes outside the sales organization. It goes to kind of the corporate expectations. Yep of what to do. So it's CEOs and COOs and everybody need to get on board because we're going down a death spiral of performance. Uh, (laughs) Yes, I agree. I'm glad you said it, but it, it's happening, right? I mean, we, you and I have talked in the past about, you know, one, one way of measuring that is win rates. And I see it in companies I talk with and work with is that, there's an acceptance of a level of performance that uh, to me seems unprecedented and unsustainable. It's funny. It's, it's, it's almost like we treat them as laws of physics or nature is that, you know, and literally I have a client right now, their win rate is 17%. And when you look at the change initiatives they're trying to drive, they're accepting 17% is the win rate. So they say, how do we get more business at that 17%? And exactly. I go and, and I asked them a different question. I said, what would happen if you doubled that and got it up to 35%? What would you be doing differently? How much more productive would you be? You know, how much better can you be deploying your resources or how much more return can you get from those resources? And, you know, and God forbid you go from 35 to 51, uh, 50% or something like that. I have one, again, you see these remarkable clients. I've been working with a company in Europe for about three years. Um, They went from an average transaction value of $10,000. And as they looked at their growth plans, they were going to have to be hiring 300 to 500 people a month Mm -hmm. to meet their ambitions for growth plans. And they said, we have to change things. That math just doesn't work. Um, Then, then two is, is so, you know, so we started changing the way they approach things and we, you know, several things happened. One is in three years, their average deal value went from $10,000 to over a million dollars. What they discovered was those deals always existed, but they were so distracted by these $10,000 opportunities, they didn't have time 
to chase those those million uh, million dollar plus opportunities. Um, two is at the same time their win rate. They had very good win rates. They had sixty percent win rates, but now their win rates are seventy to eighty percent. Mm-hmm. Um, three is their forecast accuracy has skyrocketed. <laughs> yeah. and, and then the most important thing is in this transition, they have become strategically important to their customers. Their customers are right. now treating them as partners. Right. Their customers are inviting them into their planning meetings and strategy meetings uh, and so on. And it's stuff you and I read back in, in um, Neil's books and in Mac's books. Those are the things that happen, uh, and these people are implementing it. Yeah, I mean, it's it's. I mean, look at let's just start with the perspective of a salesperson. If if you're out there and your your win rate is seventeen percent, let's just round it up to twenty percent. And what are what are you feeling as you're as you're going through your your work and you're saying my experience is as a seller that I'm losing four out of my five qualified opportunities. Who who enjoys working that way? Why would you want to continue working that way? That's that's so that's one thing that that I and I understand the pressures on sellers to sort of conform to a process that that's engineered to create that outcome. But yeah, yeah here's where, where I'll be a little bit cynical and you, you know, I don't have a cynical bone in my body, right. but, uh, <laughs> but uh, is I don't know that they know they should be asking themselves that question. I can see that because managers, their managers aren't asking it. Yeah. I mean, I, I, yeah. a couple years ago, I had a conversation with CRO about, very large prominent SaaS company, 19% win rate and said, well, what are your plans for growth and how are you planning on achieving that? And it was all about more volume, executing yeah. more volume at the 19% win rate, which yeah. again, if you want to be cynical about it, that's no longer selling. That's just playing the odds. It's playing the odds and it's, it's fulfilling transactions. And, yeah. and so what you see, and now you start seeing, why customers are voting for other alternatives. They sure. say, you know, you aren't helping me, so I need to find help someplace else. else. Right. And I think that's, that's... Someone else. Right. And so I think that there's still, as people see that research about you know, buyers and lack of interest in dealing with sellers, as sort of doom and gloom, but it's really it's an opportunity because they want to talk with sellers who can help them. And so if you can put yourself in a position to, to be of value to a buyer, to truly dig in and really understand what's important to them and help them achieve their desired outcomes, they've got time for you. Yeah, and see, that's, that's the part of – I started – we started this discussion where I said I've never been more optimistic about selling than I am now. And, and part of it is we're seeing these – the pandemic has – been a real forcing function to bring these behaviors to the forefront. We can't ignore them any further. We can't ignore the dramatic shift in how buyers are buying, not because they don't like it, it just because they want to get answers and they want to get help and they aren't getting it from traditional places. Mm-hmm. We're starting to see other people say, how do I respond to this? Um, 
we're starting to see forcing functions like Gen Z's. Uh, you know, our, our, our friend Howard Dover in, at uh, UTD talks about Gen Z's abandoning and going to other places uh, because they want to work in places that, uh, that value them um, and where they can be heard. So, so we're seeing this convergence of, I think, forcing functions that are giving particularly uh, creative, innovative leaders the chance to rethink things and, in fact, the air cover to rethink mm-hmm. things and try new experiments and, and start seeing the results from that. And then, you know, we'll see like the, the classic crossing the chasm curves is right now we're seeing a lot of the early adopters to that. But I think pretty soon their success will start resonating with more people and we'll start seeing those fast followers. And so I, I do think we're on the cusp, and this may be my idealism, uh, or or maybe my naivete, but I think we're on the cusp of an opportunity to really change in a profoundly positive way what selling and what what buying is about. I agree, and I I, I try to be. I think I'm optimistic in my perspective in my new book coming out is is about that specifically. Is that there's this opportunity if you can be the seller that the buyer needs. Right, and well, this is this is a perspective that that so few companies take. Is you know, it's having this conversation with somebody recently about you know they were putting together a job description, job requirements for filling some sales slots, AE slots, and, <laughs> and I said, well, just a question for you is you know you've got these requirements here and and you know fairly traditional, but I said, you know, have you ever stopped and asked your buyers what they need from your sellers? Yeah, in order to get their yeah. job done. And it's just, it's nothing, you know, you get a blank stare, you get crickets in return. It's like, this is who, this is who we're affecting our sellers having an impact on. Why don't we find out what they need? And and see what, what I, what so resonated about when I read the early draft of the book, what so resonated to me is you're posing the right questions and it's all common sense. Mm. And, and they aren't, you know, they aren't difficult questions, but you have to have the courage to be able to pose them and really engage your customers in those conversations. Exactly. Um, I, I remember some years ago I was running a, a, a seminar for uh, uh, a very, very large software company, and it was, you know, how to engage customers more effectively. And I asked him, I said, well, have you ever talked to your customers about how they want to be engaged? Right. Um, and they said, wow, that's a novel idea. <laughs> um, and, and so I just, I mean, I guess it's my craziness. I said, tell you what, let's have this fireside. I called it a fireside chat. I said, I have to know your largest customer, um, the, key to, the, the key person who made decisions happened to be a good personal friend of mine. I said, tell you what, I'm going to invite this person on and all of you can sit and you can ask all the questions that you ever wanted to ask. And we had this two hour conversation about how this guy wanted to be sold to Mm -hmm. not about what he wanted to buy, but he said, 
Here's what would cause me to respond to an email or a phone call. Here's the way I expect to be treated. Here's the way I want you to engage my people. Here's what makes a difference to us. And it was all just, you know, common sense of things that they had never done before because they were making it far more complicated than it, it, they ever needed um, and, and so on. And he says, you know, it was ask me any ask me questions about what it takes to get an appointment mm-hmm. ask me questions about how i get things approved right you know and he gave them the cookbook and it's the same thing with everybody else and we just you know nobody ever thinks to sit down and say you know ask customers how would you like to be sold to we focus on what we want to sell them but we never ask them how would you like to be sold to well and i think in addition to that the part that's missing is <clears throat> understanding, starting to quantify what the buyer's experience is with your sellers. Yeah. And I've done this for clients in the past where we survey the buyers who create an, an index, if you will, mm-hmm. um, almost like a sort of NPS for, except for se- the sellers, right? With yeah, or buyer. something like, a, you know, I'd love to develop a, a, a J.D. Powers-like. Yeah, uh, yeah. And index, and you get so much information from that. Yeah, it's it's like the whole issue with uh, you know sales training is okay as a management team. How are you making an investment? Or how are you making a decision about how, where you're going to invest your dollars for training? Yeah. And sure, we look at the usual sources about you know, performance data and, and so on that that we have available to us as leaders. But then the part that's always missing is well, shouldn't we go out and talk to the the buyers. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, especially if we're only, especially if, if you've got a company win rate at 17%, like you described, if you're not talking to your buyers about what that experience is like dealing with your sellers, you're crazy. Yeah. Well, it's something I, uh, I remember back, you know, back in the olden days and I was a uh, young sales person, you know, you know, you know, peddling my wares out the back of a covered wagon. But, uh, uh, you know, when I was an old salesperson, we used to do things like win-loss reviews. And we'd, we'd really sit down and study what we did, what we didn't do to win, and what we did and didn't do to lose. And then we'd, we'd have people that would go interview customers in a real unbiased way to mm-hmm. kind of learn from them and get their input so that we could improve. Right. Um, and I look at, you know, most people don't understand, you know, as I go to a lot of, and these are multi-billion dollar corporations, I say, why do you win? Why do you lose? You know, we we win because we have great salespeople and great products. We lose because our price is too high. Mm. Um, or we have product deficiency. But, you know, so there are those nominal things and, you know, they go into Salesforce and there's the drop down of six reasons that you can put of why you won or lost. And that's the extent of their win-loss analysis. And they don't really get in and say, what did we do? What did we didn't, didn't do? And how did we work with them? And they never go talk to a customer and said, what could we have done differently? Mm-hmm. Why, were you, why did you like the, other, the alternative you chose so much better? Right. Or what caused you to abandon your buying effort, and how might we have changed that? Right. 
You know, and the interesting things is when you do that, customers really like those conversations because sure. they're conversations that are helpful to them. For them, exactly. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, for them, it's a form of discovery because they can apply that to other buying buying efforts that they they use as well. Well, yeah, they're learning through this process themselves. So, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it's it's. I think until this really becomes, uh, you know, part of the routine, part of the habit for sales leadership to say that when we analyze these issues, performance issues, we have to look at them not only for what we're doing, but for also how, how these efforts are received by our buyers. Mm-hmm. So they, we make that sort of standard and part of the process. We're going to continue to struggle. And this is yeah. a hard job. I mean, selling's hard, right? It's hard, hard work. Uh, why do we make it harder on ourselves? Yeah. 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 And what do we yeah. do? Well, you know, selling's hard, hard work. Buying is harder work. Um, <laughs> And, and the interesting thing is, I mean, it's hard work for us, and we do it every single day. Buying, you know, if mm-hmm. you look at major B2B purchases, it's something I may do two or three times in a career. And usually it's, you know, separated by three, four, five years, right. and everything has changed. So uh, as a buyer, I'm in a situation that I've seldom been in before, and I don't know what to do, what not to do, how to do it. So it's much more difficult for me to buy because that's not what I've been trained in. My day job is something else, running manufacturing, running product development. Right. This is just one item on a checklist that I have on my to-do yeah. list, and I I would prefer to get it off the checklist as soon as possible. Yeah. And, and so, you know, you start thinking, well, who are the experts in this? Well, it's people who do this job every single day. And, and also, what if I, as a salesperson, started, you know, stop focusing on selling? But we've learned a lot in selling about how people buy. Right. And we can help make that easier for you. Yeah. Well, back to what we talked about at the beginning of the conversation, which is, Organizations you're working with that are hiring business process engineers as, as part of the sales team to go work with buyers and use that as a qualification disqualification point is that, yeah, the buyer is not interested, then in your help in helping them learn how to buy, then, yeah, probably, they're probably not serious and they'll probably fail or, or again, become the customer. Or the worst thing they could do is make a purchase from you. From you, right. And become the customer from hell. Well, <laughs> Purchase from you on a price basis, yes. Yeah, <laughs> that, yeah, that would yeah. be the worst scenario, right? Yeah. All right, Dave, I know you got to hop off. Um, hey, I appreciate you coming back on. Well, th- it's always such a pleasure. I love these conversations, you know, and I, you raised this novel idea. Maybe you and I should have these conversations offline every once in a while. Yeah, let's do, let's do that. <laughs> <laughs> All right, Dave, if people want to connect with you, what's the best way to do that? Uh, best way, LinkedIn. Um, you can find me at LinkedIn, uh, at my blog site, partnersinexcellenceblog.com, or on Twitter at David A. Brock. Perfect. Dave, thank you so much. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, Andy. Okay, friends, that's it for this episode. First of all, I want to thank you for taking the time to listen. As always, I'm so grateful for your support of this program. And I want to thank my guest, David Brock, for sharing his insights with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, Sales Enablement with Andy Paul, 
on iTunes, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Thank you for your help with that. And thank you so much for investing your time with me today. Until next time, I'm your host, Andy Paul. Good selling, everyone. Good selling, everyone.